2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay. Um, greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recall This Book. Today, I'm delighted to to be here again with my friend and co-producer and co-host, John Plotz from the English Department of Brandeis. Hi, John.
0: Hey, Elizabeth.
2: And especially happy to have uh, Professor Duran Wallace with us. Duran is Associate Professor of Sociology and Education at Brandeis, and uh, he has a PhD from the University of Cambridge, and he is the author of the recently released book, The Culture Trap, Ethnic Expectations and Unequal Schooling for Black Youth, which is out with Oxford University Press and is going to be the topic of our episode today. So hello, Duran, and welcome.
1: Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, John. So good to be here. Um, And it's, uh, you know, I've been able to have conversations with folks about my work who are sociologists or education scholars or, you know, immigration study scholars, but it's such a delight to have a conversation with um scholars from different disciplines right scholar in English and anthropology but what is more it feels like a really special honor to do so with colleagues from my own university um feels really special so thank you so much for this
2: yeah well thank you and 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 that's really um gets at the heart of recall this book too is yeah. to
0: i feel like if we knew the waltham city anthem we could sing
1: it now in that <laughs> 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 only, john in my case only if it's the jamaican anthem okay <laughs> <laughs>
2: there you go yeah <laughs> Um, Okay, so Duran, could we start off by just letting, having you tell us a little bit about the project and the book?
1: Sure. This project is a cross-national study. The book is a cross-national study of Black Caribbean youth in London and New York City. Since the 1920s, Black Caribbeans have been deemed a high-achieving Black model minority relative to African Americans, whereas in the UK context, since the 1960s, they've been deemed the chronically underachieving minority. In both contexts, it is argued that there's something intrinsic to their culture that produces these outcomes, this culture of success in the U.S. and a culture of failure in the U.K. Well, this cross-national study calls into question the significance of culture and spotlights the importance of national policy context in shaping the divergent outcome of the same ethnic group. What I'm arguing fundamentally here is that there's so much about the relationship between culture and structure that's being relegated and simplified to purely being a matter of culture. And that is what I argue is the culture trap, right? It sort of splinters Black political power. It limits our capacity to understand the full range of structural and cultural inequalities that exist in schools and Mm -hmm. in society. It is both an epistemological and an analytical sort of limit that we place both in sort of academic discourse, but also in sort of popular culture, popular understandings of contemporary social affairs that I'm trying to unpick um, in this work. There is nothing in the tradition of Stuart Hall and Pierre Bourget, there's nothing intrinsic to the culture of um, Black Caribbeans, I argue in this book, or any specific group, frankly, that... Mm -hmm success or failure. It's also about the context of reception. It's also um, about the class dimensions of migration, right, that shapes who goes where. Um, It's Mm -hmm. also about the order of Black migration, as I discuss in the book. There are a range of structural, historical, and political factors um, that shapes um, the reception of a particular cultural group um, to a national context. And this is what we often miss in contemporary discussions um, in education, Mm -hmm. um, but also in general discussions about who's successful or who's a failure in society Mm -hmm. the impetus for the project i must add though i had no and i feel so grateful that i can say this now because the book is done i had no interest in in sort of studying black caribbeans i was actually studying economic development right so much of my Mm. work I went to graduate school to study economics, edu- the economics of education in particular. Um, mm-hmm. and I was working as a community organizer and I had a chance encounter, which I describe in the opening scenes of the book, um, yes. with a veteran Black Caribbean teacher who um was surprised at the time that I was um Black Caribbean and studying at Cambridge. And um her response to me was um mm-hmm. when I told her I studied at Cambridge, she said, your caribbean and she was very shocked that mm-hmm. that Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, well, in the US, it was a complete opposite, right? That this, this this, sort of narrative, and I recall even from my first year in university, debates between Uh, Mm -hmm. noted legal scholar Lonnie Gounir and Henry Louis Gates Jr. about the sort of which particular cohort of blacks or which um, uh, Mm. of blacks were we seeing in the Ivy League? And they were describing Mm. at sort of a black alumni conference that black immigrants were disproportionately represented among black students in the Ivy League, right? And in particular, this sort of at that time that black Caribbeans um, constituted the largest share of the sort of black immigrant population among those in the Ivy League, right? So right. A very, very different sort of policy context and public in the traditional of Stuart Hall, different representation of the same group. Um, right. uh, but as I, you know, after I had my conversation with her in community organizing, we used to encourage folks to sort of write down notes with leaders, right? Mm. So that next time you meet them, you could remember. Mm. And so I'm only sharing this because community organize- organizing shaped my ethnographic sensibilities, right? So long mm-hmm became like an onerous task of documenting everything it actually was part of my everyday practice as an organizer Mm -hmm. Um, and I realized quickly I went back spoke to my friends spoke to people in the neighborhood about what was going on and they said yeah this has been going on for for decades how did you not know and I was like well it's the opposite where I'm coming from I didn't know right I, I leave through every sociology book I could find black studies history textbooks and I could not find a text that could um uh, speak to these divergences, mm. you know, in representations across two mm-hmm. different national contexts, um, and so. Kicking and screaming, I decided I would write this book. Um, <laughs> and, um now it's out. <laughs> and I'm elated yes. is out.
2: Well it's it's kind of ironic because you're you're you know critiquing the notion of culture and yet you were sort of drawn into you weren't gonna study culture and then you were, right? Yeah. And you were absolutely. drawn into it. So, so in some sense it trapped you as well, I
1: suppose. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say it. I wouldn't say it trapped me. I would say it captivated me. Okay,
2: fair, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. It,
1: it really <laughs> lured me in and invited me to sort of think through a problem that I was seeing playing out from a deficit standpoint in the UK context, right? Right, like, right. See, there's even more recent reports, like the Sewell report, which came out um, just about uh, a year and a half ago, um, uh, Tony Sewell is a... Um, Policy advocate, and he was asked to write this report, basically on sort of the state of race in Britain. And mm. he made a couple of really strong um, claims, um, you know, about Britain that race was no longer a key issue, that okay. it was far more equal in Britain than across Europe. That the greatest accomplishments can be seen in education. And he goes on to say, you know, the major exception to these are like Black Caribbean people, who he's himself is Black Caribbean. Um, mm. so that's the latest iteration of that sort of narrative, but there can right. be where this is rehearsed regularly, particularly as exam grades come out and consistently Black Caribbean students fall to the bottom, right? That this narrative around culture gets sort of reasserted as the rationale for their achievement. Are there uh,
0: other um, international sort of um, like... Uh, sort of comparandums, like I guess maybe France and America with Vietnamese Americans. I don't know what the other cases would be, but I'd be interested to know how you thought about these other cases where you get divergent, you know, perceived outcomes in different of, of the same immigrant group.
1: Yeah, so it, nothing conclusive. Um, there's been some anecdotal evidence that suggests that um, uh, how particular groups fare varies across context. So um, there have been some reports about um, particular groups of Asians not faring as well in, say, Australia, right? As mm. the United States, right? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's part of what I hope to think about later. And it's part of why I theorize the culture trap the way that I do. Because yeah. what I want to think about the... The, this, um, the case of Black Caribbeans with specificity and depth, the theoretical argument I'm making far exceeds the case of Black Caribbeans, right? Yeah. And there are right. other groups around the world, which I think is what your question gestures towards, John, um, yeah. are also experiencing this it, as well. it
0: definitely does, and I like the point that you're making about it being in a variety of contexts, but I was also specifically pulling on something that I think both Elizabeth and I were interested in, which is the notion of like what I think you call direct versus indirect settler colonial context. So right. I was primary about. and
2: secondary, maybe.
0: primary and secondary. Yeah. Thank you. But yeah. like, you know, instances where people are coming to what is perceived as like the quote, mother country as you know, our colleague, how Cam right. studies Vietnamese francophone literature and Vietnamese literature in America. And yeah. I, you know, it, it's like an interesting, it, it, you know, the comparison that even, you know, might line up in interesting ways.
2: Yeah. 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 And that, I mean, to me, that's so, you know, you, one of the things that, that I really love about the book, is the way that you um you know you include the well in the first place just to say very clearly like it's such a striking case where you know you have these very divergent situations and but both of them are are attributed to culture right in one place they succeed in one place they fail relatively speaking mm-hmm. and in both cases it's attributed to culture so it really you know allows you to push on the the um implications of the culture concept and the ways in which it gets wielded so effectively um the thing about the primary and secondary that i wanted to ask you about because i think it's so it, it it really speaks to this you know you have sections where you talk for instance about um and please correct me if i'm mischaracterizing this but um that in some ways the the educational system in um in the caribbean at least in the british caribbean mm-hmm. is not only kind of extolling the british system as the best of the best but also modeled after it and somewhat like it right so in some ways there's um um but I think it's also, there's this way in which you you have the, you, you give the opportunity to talk about colonialism as something that is, mm. you know, very relational, more relational than people sort of um, think about it sometimes. Like it really matters that, you know, Caribbeans in New York, for instance, kind of have the position of immigrants not who are not part of already a kind of colonial context Mm -hmm. whereas in Britain they're colonial subjects who are kind of out of place Mm -hmm. or what do you think about that
1: yeah that was a um that's a that's one of the chapters I almost threw out of the book
2: (laughs) (laughs) well I'm glad you didn't I'm
1: so glad I didn't um on the advice of sort of um families that were part of the study my, my own family um mm. and, and mentors um yeah i wanted to have a clear conversation um uh in that chapter about a really key point that i think challenges traditional immigration studies work and that mm. is when we think about cross-national work we tend to think you can compare those people often immigrants or the children of immigrants in the two mm. host societies within which they find themselves yeah and the main point I'm trying to make in that chapter is that you cannot possibly understand the experiences of Black Caribbeans in either London or New York City, unless you're understanding their perceptions of the home, whole society from the homeland. It right. therefore means we no longer have a two-way comparison, we have a three-way comparison. Right, right. right the right. larger point right then is you can't understand any immigrant by simply focusing on their experiences in, you know, New York, Miami, Paris, Amsterdam. You also must relationally understand both the circuits of power that shaped their migration to that context, yeah. but also their perceptions of that city context, that new host society from the homeland.
2: Yeah, and that's that brought
1: great. me to the analysis of sort of colonialism's impact. A lot of what I'm thinking about now is what I regard as the educational legacies of empire right, the ways in which long after the sort of constitutional collapse um, of um, sort of dominant post-colonial regimes, we can start to think our colonial regimes, pardon me, um, and this sort of march into independence, as it were, we can think about how through the structure of schools, right, what we teach, how the schools are structured, the sort of um, how teachers um, extol a particular nation state or its Schooling and how it sort of imbibes the sense of, of, of belonging and even being, as it were, um in a, a former colonial power, um, uh, but still right. sustaining at an effective level that colonial relation, right? I right, right. To make that in my work um and hadn't seen um much of that to date. Um, so you yeah, know you're you're absolutely right, um, Elizabeth. In the work, I um I pay attention to the fact that black Caribbeans who went to the United Kingdom were primary subjects of of British colonialism, um, Mm -hmm. right? Even before they went to the United Kingdom as immigrants, right? Right, right. Um, Whereas Black Caribbeans who came to the United States um, were secondary subjects of U.S. settler colonialism, right? Right. Um, Both the differences in the types of sort of the the different structures of these colonial relations
2: um,
1: and the, the order in which they fall, matters tremendously for the status and their representation in the nation state. What I'm trying to say is, again, something that you think you can simply dismiss as a matter of culture is profoundly historical, deeply structural. And, you know, I also want to make the claim because sociologists went through this in the late 60s, 70s, this rejection of culture that you sort of gestured towards as well, um, Elizabeth, following the Moynihan Report and a host of other reports that really were, you know, advancing rather pathological views on Black families in particular. And so right. be critical, scholars were distancing themselves from that narrative. What I'm trying to do in this moment is I want to take culture so seriously as to understand it um, so deeply that I must engage with its relationship to structure. Exactly, it's not right. Culture. right. It's actually to take it so seriously as to understand how, not just the, the meaning making around it, but how right. it is framed and understood and structured in a particular context, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's my mode of engagement in relation to culture. And I, I hope that engages. And,
2: and that's where you, I mean, w- what it seems to me is that's where your legacy or the legacy of, of Stuart Hall and Pierre Bourdieu, mm-hmm. and I would posit uh, you know, Antonio Gramsci, right, mm-hmm. yes, both they're both
1: connected, yeah, right,
2: yeah. people, um, because there, you know, there is no division between culture and structure, right, mm-hmm. um, and, and therefore that sort of, or history for that matter, right,
1: mm-hmm. um, how is the culture trap constructed, how yeah. has, what role has the state and its actors played in its development, um, and sustenance over time, um and so you know the, the points you're lifting up, Elizabeth, makes me think about how in the 1960s, and this will be relevant for the contemporary moment. You know, following you know the the, the passing of a whole slew of civil rights acts in the, you know the mid 1960s, you know, your conservative pundits drew on the case of Black Caribbeans to say we didn't need affirmative action. Mm. Here was this other this new cohort of blacks, and look at them like uh, based on sort of economic dev- um, output, home ownership, educational mm. attainment they were thriving. We don't need affirmative action, right? They were arguing mm-hmm. because this group just had the right cultural stock, as it were, and, you know, right. to motivate them towards success. Um, Which and- is
2: also an argument saying that the U.S. is really not racist, right?
1: Precisely. Precis- ex- fundamentally, this is not about race. It's both about dismissing this sort of weighted category of way- race or anti-Blackness in particular,
2: mm-hmm. but just
1: to say it's, it, it comes down to a fundamental matter of one's sort of um, inner beliefs and drives, a a drive as it were, um, which just fundamentally limits, um, history once again, and what's shaped the presence and experiences of black folks in the U S up until that point. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help for your financial to do's bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: right so can i actually use that this is a this is sort of an ignorant question because i'm just desperately trying to remember the way the rhetoric of the moynihan report like in the original report and then how it was taken but i would could you just tell us more about that phrase culture of poverty because one of the things i really like about your work John, i think elizabeth also likes it like this notion that race class gender And then the 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 sort of the triad plus this possibility that culture exists as a kind of shadow category there but the but the phrase culture of poverty and you you should correct me if i'm wrong the way i remember it with the moynihan report it's almost as if it the word culture there has a bit of a shifter effect where it's attached to poverty as if what's being perpetuated is like the endemic nature of being poor do you see what i mean rather than it being a separate category so which is certainly a way of like deflating or deflecting marxist class-based critiques you know because instead of seeing poverty right. as something that's an attribute of a class system you see it as like inherent.
2: right if people just read to their kids yeah. more then exactly. precisely.
1: Right. precisely yeah, yeah. yeah. and but, then which groups get represented as having that culture of poverty i think that's the yeah. that's the part right it's yes on one hand there's this loose um you know, open-ended category that is the culture of poverty that can be attached to um, any group, you know, finding themselves um, steeped in poverty, right? But right. we know owing to the structures of American society disproportionately who those people are. Yeah, And than that, we know the, the, the media's commitment to, to sort of the sort of uh, repeated representation of those groups as being the ones in poverty. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And so there's this sort of... Um,
0: so uh, does culture just become racialized. a cover? Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Sorry. It's fundamentally racialized to your question. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. So we attach the culture of poverty. Yes, though we know it's about, it's theorized as being relevant to a whole host of hoops it's seen as a representation of Black people in particular.
2: Right, right, exactly, right. right.
1: And that's so, fundamentally the problem, right? It's not, so on one hand, when you read the text, it's about, it's a, you know, and John, you may appreciate, it, it's about interpretation on one hand, yeah. you know, but it's, you could also argue that in it's, um, it, it's about its deliberate slyness, as it were, right? It, it, its capacity to encode multiple meanings, right? right? That allows it to have sort of traction in the sort of, public political discourse but at the same time in sort of popular culture media representation allows us to sort of reinforce dominant deficit perspectives of a particular not to be a class group but uh, a racialized group
0: so apropos of interpretation this sort of comes to one of the things that i think is is so interesting in your work and where you're crisscrossing this question of ethnic expectation and the culture trap in a couple of different ways so that set of um that sort of sleight of hand move you're describing there has to do with like a general public that is set up to receive something that is um you know putatively race Mm -hmm. neutral but actually racialized but you also have a set of arguments about um the internalization of ethnic expectation you know that is the way in which these culture traps aren't just categories by which um neutral data is interpreted for the benefit of policymakers you're also talking about how this hits people's lives right i mean school children especially can can Mm -hmm. you say more about that is it you know like is that is that where the rubber meets the road that is when people come to in get inculcated into the notion that they're uh culturally marked in one way or another
1: yeah thanks so much for that question john i think it's at least one point where the rubber meets the road road and it feels significant Because the the, in internalizing these logics at at, at different junctures, for me, the rationalization about why that logic has traction um, is what I find most fascinating. Right. So folks would genuinely say they work hard. But what what allowed you? It's what 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 might have allowed you to work hard, right? So Mm. again, this sort of quiet but significant weighty presentism that sort of shapes. On our understanding of even Caribbean success here, right? Well, Mm -hmm. we know in the 19 and I uncover this in the book. In the 1920s, immigration policy necessitated that only sort of only those proficient, highly proficient in English language were allowed migration from the Caribbean. Mm. Then becomes a code for recruiting the sort of middle classes and the elites to come to the United States. But rather than being represented as sort of middle class Black Caribbean people, they're simply seen as. It's Caribbean culture. That Mm -hmm. is what I refer to as a secret life of social class. Like class is shaping the quality of representation we see of a particular group in a national context, right? Mm -hmm. Um, People, when students, when teachers think that this is just a matter of culture, when social class is playing such a profound role and they're not able to see it in some cases, that's when it hits me the most. What I also found most moving in um, in the context of doing this ethnography was just how much young people saw Mm. I was floored. Right. I spent a lot of time as a professor yeah. working with young people, but I walked away with a really clear sense that young people are savvy political actors, whether they have the vote or not. Right. <laughs> right? right. Um, yeah. And I, I they are able to recognize structural and cultural inequalities that were sedimented um, and regularized for teachers. And um, it, at least in the last chapter of the book, which I think is where a lot of things come to a head, the class clown becomes, you know, the teacher's chief critic, you know, challenging mm-hmm. him on what he describes as, you're using our culture against us.
2: Right. Those
1: right. were his words, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the kid who opens up the book making fun, right? And mm-hmm. um, having this interaction with his teacher. So for me, it's in, see, culture has its power, not simply, um, or, you know, in the sort of meaningful theorizations we may advance, right, in the sort of quality right. of works we may produce. It has profound implications um, in schools and society because it shapes Teacher and student dispositions, who right. we are, what we believe yeah. about ourselves, and what's possible. It therefore has implications for democracy. It therefore has implications mm-hmm. for um uh for for even social welfare and who we believe deserves mm-hmm. it or not right. It, it it's a case for a whole host of larger points about how society is structured and who's deserving and who's not. Can Can yeah. you say more about that? I
0: love that point about the awareness. It almost reminds me of, like, uh, the Lukacs argument about reification in the class consciousness of the proletariat, where he basically says that you need to be in the position of the proletariat in order to have the correct structural understanding, because a lot of times I hear that argument run, like, I think about, forgive me if I'm using this phrase wrong, but there's a category stereotype threat, you know, Mm -hmm. the notion that people are um, basically stigmatized and sort of set up for failure because they're imagining what the expectation is for them, and that yeah. I think uh, understands. Let's say school children. Let's imagine it for that case as disabled by these cultural predispositions. But but the thing you just said was like you you see the kids in that situation as actually having
1: an angle on it. Like they have yeah, they have absolutely. some traction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have some traction. Um, and it isn't universal. They don't always have it. It yeah. is situational. It's contextual. Right. And often when they are most disadvantaged by the structures of power. Right. Right. So when you flip the case, right, um, these black Caribbean students, when they're celebrated in New York and African-Americans are being put down in schools, they see that. Mm
2: -hmm,
1: (laughs) Right. right. That that is not as concerning to them. But when their teacher starts to use their culture as what the sociologist Diane Ray regards as an ideological whip, as a way for getting them in line, um, they see that and and, and want to resist it. More than that, as I bring up in the sort of gender chapter, and this was peculiar for me as well. in a cross national study, you often expect to say things are different, things are different. But in that chapter on gender, I was like, wow, they're actually what the Black Caribbean boys are experiencing in both London and New York is the same. And what the Black uh-huh. Caribbean girls in London and New York are experiencing is the same. And the point I'm just, and I can unpack this. Yes. Bit, I want to stay germane to the point you're making um, yep. or the question you posed, John. Yeah,
2: but just say a little more about that because it was so interesting.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. What, what I, you know, let me make the, the 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 point first, and I'll use examples. Okay. The boys did not recognize how the general concern about you know b- black boys being a, a beleaguered party, this underachieving group needing all this help, how it afforded them levels of privilege in school. They didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, it, when you read the book closely, I was very forthright in sort of saying there were moments where I was in conversation with these girls, and they're like, "You don't see it? How could you not see it?" And I was like, "Yeah." I, Maybe you're just like, let's dig a little bit deeper. And, you know, they would, I was greeted (laughs) with eye rolls and neck rolls and, you know, (laughs) know, why my own male privilege growing up in a Caribbean context meant that I too had benefited from this and I didn't see it despite my own political consciousness. I'm using that as an example to say, again, what are the moments when we see and we don't see structural and cultural inequalities, right? And that isn't peculiar to young people. It isn't peculiar to Black Caribbeans. I could talk about mm-hmm. our own faculty. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. I could yeah. talk about the wider society and local community. I could talk yeah. about the sort of middle yeah. classes moving into working yeah. class neighborhoods and, you know, when it's okay, you know, Black middle class people moving into Black working class neighborhoods. And when it's reclamation right. versus when it's gentrification. I mean, it's, these are the sort of nuances I wanted to lift up in the book.
2: Yeah. To the examples yeah. you were
1: asking about before, Elizabeth, yeah, I found that, you know, um, uh, in the latter parts of the book, I focus on three cultural logics that um, Black Caribbean students use in pursuit of success, distinctiveness, deference, and defiance. And I can say more about each of those, but the one most relevant is deference. It's this Mm -hmm. um, ideological investment in good behavior and comportment um, as being relevant to one's success. And what I learned in the context of pursuing this work and write about in the book is that um, it was profoundly a gendered um, ideological frame, right? Right. Um, And that rewards were starkly different for boys and girls. So in a context in both London and New York City, where black boys were deemed to, 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 to need sort of policy and social support to sort of aid in their achievement, right. those boys um, then were praised for, um, they experienced what I call complimentary deference or deference for the sake of receiving praise. They right. got praise for just showing up to class on time, raising their hands on occasion in class, right? Yeah. You know, in one case, just guessing uh an answer to a question, right? right? This kid was beating his chest because he was proud. The girls, the Black Caribbean girls on both sides of the Atlantic were not praised because of their behavior. They practice what I call compulsory deference, right? Yeah. Um, and that's because they, they were they did not receive praise by virtue of behavior because they're supposed to be deferential. They're girls, right? It's right. a compulsory formula. That's what girls do. Right. You fall in line. Right. Um, and so they could only receive praise through high academic achievement. And this right. was true in both national contexts, right? And so what we're seeing there is that in this attempt to sort of support boys, they're engendering this sort of low gendered expectations for Black Caribbean boys on both sides of the Atlantic, where they're easily praised. And the praise is supposed to be an attempt to sort of support their advancement, right. but it actually helps to keep them back. The girls, on the other hand, who in their everyday social life wish to be praised for Showing up on time or participation, get none of that. It's only through the pressure of high academic achievement that they're able to garner those rewards. And I wasn't even able to see that. It was completely revelatory for me because I could now look back on even my own educational experience and see where I had benefited from the same thing relative to young women and girls who were far much smarter than I was. Mm. But I, I, you know, my good behavior. Right. Was uh, yeah. was rewarded, right? And I was sure. right? So well, as
0: you're describing it, it's not exactly a benefit, right? Because if the effect of it is a kind of it, it, it is a right. negative payoff. Because
1: I would say, but it's both and because it, at yeah. least in real time, your the immediate reward is that the teacher is recognizing yeah. that. Story that boy right in a way that she or he or they would not recognize a girl yeah the yeah yeah right right right, right, in right. real time it, particularly in the context relationally among students they can recognize that something is different there it's, right you um... know over the long haul it helps to sort of limit it's putting a cap on sort of behavioral expectations for black women boys because you know boys will be boys they're going to be silly they're going to run around they're going to yeah. do they're going to gonna be unruly and yeah. that's yeah. again that's not unique to just Black Caribbean boys, or,
2: no. I mean, it yeah. reminds, I can name a whole
1: host reminds, of boys. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it reminds me a lot of uh, you know parenting expectations. For instance, of you know, you know, both both my husband and I had full time jobs when the kids were little, mm-hmm. and you know, we shared the caretaking. But every time, and he would say this himself, right? Every time he did anything, it was like, oh, it's so incredible, you know, that's right. such a great dad, right? Whereas, right. you know, I was always on the, you know, <laughs> very much on the teetering margin of acceptability for, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I have come to, to learn, this is a more on the personal side, but my, my, my partner and I, my wife and I, we, we joke about this because she's very sort of... Um, very diplomatic and very um incredibly thoughtful but if you want to upset her very quickly begin praising me for basic parenting oh my I god know, right <laughs> yes. he loses it and she reminds me this is your this is her words this is your reasonable service you're not doing anything extra here. It's know, nothing right, that's right. worthy of praise we are doing this together but it's again okay. another case another example of how that very gendered logic right? Travel across time and space and across a whole host of ethnocultural cultural groups. Um, yeah. And these are some of the dynamics that could quickly get uh, dismissed or relegated or simplified to merely being a matter of culture that I yeah. want to see how both race, gender, and social class shapes the representation of cultures across context and across context.
2: Right, right, right. That's fantastic. So uh, maybe this is a great moment to, to uh, shift to our recallable books uh, oh, section yeah. of the um, of the episode, and um, Doran, are you ready? Do you have
1: sure. yeah, there are uh, there are a few pieces that come to my mind. Can I name at least three. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. So one that's had a profound impact on me is Bernard Cords' "How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal." It is the text that then shaped um, Steve McQueen's, at least the fourth fourth episode of Steve McQueen's "Small Acts," focused on education. And yep. um, interestingly, um, Bernard Cord is a Brandeis alum. Um, he's also from the Caribbean, um, and he did his work in the very area I did, I wrote it. was amazing. Well, the side where we connected afterwards, I was like, this is uncanny. felt like the very calling because he was pushed to write that book based on community actors who were saying if you're in these schools seeing what's happening with our kids you need to write this and that's yep. precisely what happened to me when I described the differences across the two national contexts members of my community was like well you need if you can't find a book you need to do it you know I yeah. I need an answer you should tell me so, so
2: Duran say the title again just sure. so we can hear it
1: yeah Bernard Court's how the West Indian child is made educationally subnormal published in 1971
2: Is it's um, such a striking title
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, and it's striking because going back to arguments about the state, I use the US example around affirmative action. Well, in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, um, into the 70s, the British government disproportionately labelled Black Caribbean students as, and I quote, educationally subnormal. That was a language of the state. That is how we reproduce the representation of a particular cultural group and sustain that over time. Right. Yep. This isn't just about what people are thinking or believing. The state plays a role in structuring these representations. Um, back to the to to, to other books. Um, I'm thinking too about um Bernadine Evaristo's um, Girl, Woman, Other. Mm. Um, mm. a really just um very provocative um book um that I think is so well done. Um I enjoy that. The other I just want to lift up, um, which Falls slightly outside of that tradition. This is a book written by a scholar, a sociologist of, of Southern Studies. I, I think you would say um, he's a scholar called B. Brian Foster. He's at the University of Virginia. Um, his book is called I Don't Like the Blues, Race, Place, and the Backbeat of Black Life. Mm. Um, it is, it, for me, it is my favorite ethnography of 2021, by mm. far. I just... There right. is a text where that is so steeped in Southern culture that, both in the language, um, and the the the, the attention to detail, um, the theorizations that are being advanced, the quantitative data brought to bear, was just mm. a level of sophistication I, I just I so appreciated. I read parts of the book, and there are moments where I would just throw the book on the floor. I was like, I can't believe you mm. just said. It right the 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 prose was so lush um that it's poetry and it's sophisticated empirical analysis i just i love oh, it great um and i got a chance to you know uh i don't know brian personally but we crisscrossed at um asa at the american sociological association this summer and I to find mm. him, and tell him like you know this is what i think of your work and i've been telling other people but i need to tell you to your face like this is yeah. a really good book so those are the three that come to my mind wonderful great. and fantastic. and
2: those will all be those will all be uh there on the website so that people can can look them up. Um, so I have a couple of uh, of things. One is um, John might laugh because I, you know, this is my <laughs> it's either it's either Anthony Trollope or Michelle Rolfe trio with me. It's like pretty much goes back and forth between the two. So in this case, um, an essay, a kind of a difficult essay, but brilliant by the um, late anthropologist michel rolf trio which is called idea culture which is about the culture concept in it and in the united states and it traces its um you know one thing that trio is really really um has a really light touch with is um the life of concepts and the ways in which concepts change and um and how concepts and words are not the same thing, that you might have the same word, but the concept is changing um, and has different kinds of histories. Um, and we really see that with culture. Um, and, you know, he talks about the ways in which the the concept of culture in a kind of Boasian tradition in, in anthropology was really um, developed, you know, not perfectly, and certainly in, you know, ways that are of its time, but, but quite pointedly, uh, to intervene in a in a conversation about race as an as an anti-racist project, and the ways in which that shifted to the kind of use of culture that you're documenting, where culture is actually a way of avoiding talking about race, mm-hmm. and 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 race comes in through the back door in a sense, right? Um, so, really fascinating um, essay. Um, not one of the ones that is normally read by a trio. So I think a really good one. And then the other thing I was gonna suggest, and, and you were I, if we had more time or or maybe later over drinks or something, I wanna ask you because you were you were a little uh reticent maybe on this, um, how you felt about this, but the wire, the the TV show The Wire.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we but it wasn't me, right? It was the participants in the study.
2: <laughs> Sorry.
1: So you're saying I'm reticent. I wouldn't say it ne- it's necessarily me, it's the participants in the study, right? And uh, what no, they were you,
2: s- you said something about the wire. You you have it as a as a representative, if I understood you right, of of a certain kind of representation of of the ways in which ed- the US educational system treats black students. And I'm just curious how you yeah. think about that. Right, right, right. Um for instance, uh, you know, there are other and now I'm going to forget the name. I think it's Stand and Deliver is the name of the movie, right? Um, the other movie that you describe in that. Lean
1: on me. Lean on me.
2: Lean on me. Yeah, yeah.
1: right. And uh, I think what I'm trying to say is it's participants who are bringing these up. And I've, you uh-huh. know, trying to be a a, a okay, a good yeah. interviewer saying, well, okay. don't you realize, or what do you think this actually represents? Do you think this is actually what's happening? Do you see what I mean? Right. So That's I fair. didn't want to bring yeah. these up, but... Um, yeah, There's also another movie in the UK context, um, with Sydney Poitier, where he is um, this Guyanese head teacher who gets recruited into Britain in the 1960s. Uh-huh. Right. Um, yeah, Mr. There, Chips
0: or something, is it
2: or To yeah. Sir With Love? There's that, to sir, that, sir to,
1: love. Love. Oh, that to sir was With Love, with love, right? right. Yeah, yeah, love. Yeah. yeah, right, and so. Yeah. Seriously, um, no one was talking about right. the culture of property among the white working classes at the time, right? And how these students no,
2: were no, it's poorly
1: behaved but, and how they needed to recruit this teacher. But that's, yeah. as you say, Elizabeth, perhaps for another time and over drinks first. Yeah,
2: yeah. But but you know, so I, to me, the the difference between the wire and a lot of those films is that it's has a much more kind of Bordeauxian sort of notion of how. I mean, it's certainly representing schools in certain ways. And I think that, you know, we could, that would be a good conversation, but, but it doesn't have the kind of heroic narrative that, that you see in a lot of these things. It's much more, mm-hmm. everybody's kind of playing the hands they're dealt. They're all quite complex actors. And that's what I love about it. So that it has this sort of um, degree to which it's, um its notion of culture to me aligns a lot more with what with, with what I see in your analytic frame, not your not your description of how the concept of culture is working in your ethnography. So, so I'm 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 a fan. So I'm, that's my recallable. Yeah.
1: So we should we should try to teach a class about um, uh, the wire, which I think colleagues have done at other universities. But I don't know if you've seen Top Boy. Which has become?
2: I love Top Boy. Yes. Yeah. So what is
1: Top Boy? I don't know what Top Boy is. Yeah, I, they, I folks crudely regard to it as the UK's wire. Right.
2: Huh, right. Right. Oh, um, and so it's, it's available. Really, really good. It's um, it's I haven't seen every. I haven't seen the last season, but yeah, no, it's great. I have.
1: Yeah, I watched it a couple of weeks ago. Um, with right. the cable. Um, but yeah, John, you should watch it and then we can, we can have a, a quick conversation about it. That, for sure. that sounds exactly. great. I'm excited. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention at least one text by Stuart Hall, and I'll close this piece, um, uh, The Fateful Triangle uh, by yeah. Stuart Hall, race, nation, race, Ethnicity and Nation, based on lectures he gave um, at Harvard, um, I found to be really, it, it's among his lesser known works. Um, hmm. but- I think it's just so rich in its theorization of race, ethnicity, and the nation state um, for the reproduction of sort of structural and cultural inequalities. And so, you know, I don't think we've, at least in sociology, there's, there's been this awakening over the past Eight or so years in sort of thinking through the relevance of Du Bois as a sociologist, as a number-crunching sociologist. And mm-hmm. I know, as I say this, they're historians sitting down, shaking their heads, saying, we've known this the whole time. Yeah, right. <laughs> sociology is sort of finally come into this moment. Um, or US sociology has finally come into this moment. And what I argue, what I strongly believe, is as just as du bois has sort of been brought into the center of sort of u.s sociology i think stuart hall deserves the same in british sociology right mm-hmm. um, and that he too ought to be taught as part of the canon instead he gets relegated simply being a matter of cultural studies that isn't necessarily cultural sociology right and we know right. the very disciplinary boundaries cultural studies being <laughs> the challenge in the first place right mm-hmm. um and to draw on the tools of literature and of art um, and a film that sociology in and of itself couldn't provide. Um, and mm-hmm. so for those reasons, I think this text is one I'd recommend to anyone interested in cultural studies broadly um, or to cultural sociology specifically.
2: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay, well, always good to end with Stuart Hall. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, So I just wanna thank you Duran so much for taking the time and uh and thanks to john and thanks to our listeners
1: thank you elizabeth and john this is yeah i've enjoyed this thank you
2: wonderful
0: all this book is the creation of john Plotz and elizabeth ferry sound editing is by kamaya bagla and music comes from a song by eric chaslow and barbara cassidy we gratefully acknowledge support from brandeis university and its mandel center for the humanities we always want to hear from you with your comments criticisms or suggestions for future episodes finally if you enjoyed today's show please forward it to five people or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening